Dan Rather is the best at digging up unbelievable stories. But if you're looking for some surprises, check out Music's Greatest Mysteries, the podcast. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight on The Big Interview. The incomparable voice that's been dazzling audiences for decades, Annie Lennox. A look at her life and her remarkable work, including her most famous song that almost didn't happen. I was really ready to pack it in and to go back to Scotland. I had realized that there was no hope and it wasn't going to happen. So I was you were like, thinking we're done here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I said Georgia. Today, Lennox is back with a new album of old classics. But why do you continue to do what you do, to do your work? I'm a musician, I'm an artist, I want to express myself, I want to communicate. And I'm very, very passionate about life and what makes me tick is to get engaged with the things that I feel passionately about. Annie Lennox, still with a voice for the ages. Well, there was a time when they used to say... Singer, songwriter, activist, and trailblazer. Annie Lennox, tonight on The Big Interview. I said, Georgia. Georgia, no peace I'll find. It's just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. Her voice is so distinctive, so rich, and for the first time in years. Annie Lennox is back on top. You know I can't stand it. You're running around. You know better than it. We caught up with her at the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles as she debuted songs from her new album, Nostalgia. I put a spell on you. Because you're mine. It jumped to number one on the jazz charts with a compilation of great American music and jazz classics. I sat down with this famous native of Scotland to find out why these classic American songs drew her in. Thank you very much for doing this. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. <laughs> well, first of all, let's talk about your new album, Nostalgia. Why this album, why now? Well, I have never recorded in the jazz genre before, and it's something new for me. And that's always an interesting challenge and a bit of an adventure. The idea occurred to me, the notion occurred to me that actually my voice could 
tackle something of this kind of material. Um, it's, it's not music that I necessarily grew up with, and contrary to people in America who've grown up with this all their lives, their grandparents, their parents and their, their children, you know, everybody knows the songs. I, know, I knew the material sort of, but more from an arm's length, so it was really stimulating to sort of encounter it fresh in that way, because I didn't have a history. Well, for example, and this is just one of many examples you could take off the album, Georgia, On My Mind, mm. uh, been recorded by Willie Nelson, among others. Uh, why Georgia On My Mind? Seems a, f a long way from Scotland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But there's nostalgia in that song. It's, it's about, this whole song is saturated in a nostalgia. Either, a pl oh, it's, it's a geographical place, or it could be a woman, because Georgia is also a woman's name. And, I, and you know, when you come to a song, and it's not your song, you don't necessarily really know what the composer was thinking. So you, it's, a, it's about your interpretation. But what I feel from that song, Georgia on my mind, oh, it is just so potent. And it's filled with this longing and reflection. And that's a feeling, I think, you know, they call it maybe homesickness. Many people feel that way from time to time. I said Georgia. amazing that there is a song and it encapsulates a human emotion like that so perfectly. Captures a human emotion so perfectly. Is that what you try to do with each and every song in the album? Yes, absolutely. Music is the language of the soul. It's the language of the intellect. It's the language of aspiration, beauty, pain, human emotion. And, you know, I was never a trained singer. I, I started uh, with my first steps into music, really, were when I was very young, I was always singing, you know, but when I went, went to school and then I was about seven years old, uh, someone said, I think your daughter's really musical and would she like to have piano lessons? And so I, I kind of got the bona fide stamp of, yes, now I'm going to start studying music, how to read music, all of those processes that you go through. And that's such a journey, you know, because you're learning the notes, you're learning so many aspects of music, and yet, ostensibly, it's, it's like you're learning a language, a different language. And it is this extraordinary, potent language that can make people cry, that can make people dance, and they, they connect with music. Everyone connects with music in such a way that it's so meaningful to people. So, you know, I kind of realized that down the line. When I started to think about it when I was older, what is this music that I'm so drawn to? Why do we make music? And I kind of figured it out for myself. And that was really when I started to sing and to write songs because I walked away from what would have been maybe a classical background. I, I, had, I had gained a place at the Royal Academy of Music in London back in this early 70s. And I realized that that really wasn't going to suit me. It just, I, I didn't suit the place and it didn't suit me. And then, I spent three years trying to figure out uh, who am I, what am I supposed to be doing, and should I go back to Scotland next week <laughs> and just give it up, you know. And then the notion of um, becoming a singer-songwriter occurred to me very, very strongly. And I, when, it, when the idea hit me, I knew that was what I had to do.
the tune, the strange flute. Mm. Seemed to me somewhat odd to include it in, in this album. Let's talk about it, strange mm. flute. Mm. Well, it's so interesting, you know, going back into a massive catalogue of songs, and I didn't really have an agenda per se. I was just like, I want to find songs that I'm drawn to. And you know, you find nostalgic songs that are very sentimental, they're very loving, they're about sweetheart and flowers and the perfume of oleander and all of this, which is wonderful and gorgeous and romantic. And at the same time, going back in time, back to that period of the 30s, you also know that economically, historically, socially, there were so many struggles going on. So it wasn't this beautiful landscape of aspiration and rom romance. At the same time, this is pre-civil rights movement. There were some very dark things were happening here. There were dark things happening all over the world forever. But in American history particularly, you had this difference between races. And for me, it's painful. You know, I, I didn't live then, but to hear the stories of lynchings, something very painful for, for me to, to, to know that these things take place. Did anyone say to you, suggest, mm, strange fruit is about lynching, don't put it in the album, it's too dark. No, 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 no. I wouldn't have let anybody stop me do that because in any case, it was so important. Uh, it's a statement in a way. It ha Strange Fruit is placed very specifically at the very end of the first half of the, of the vinyl uh, record. And it takes you down to that point. It's something to be reckoned with. It's an aspect of the darkness of humanity, of the shadow of ourselves. And it's something that you you look back in time, there it is. It hasn't gone away. So we must, I mean, from my perspective, making this piece of work, it had the balance of that darkness as well as the beauty and the sentiment and the light. It, it had to be there. Black bodies You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Annie Lennox. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox was classically trained at the Royal Academy of Music in London, but she dropped out, and in one of the great stories of fates colliding in music, Lennox first met Dave Stewart at a London restaurant in the late 1970s. They would go on to become one of the biggest pop music duos of the 80s, when they formed Eurythmics. I was born an original singer. 
Linux's haunting voice, and Stewart's electronic music wizardry made the duo hugely successful around the world. The rich sound was not the work of a band or orchestra, but rather it was the work electronically produced in a London music studio. Tell me about the start of the Eurythmics. How did it start? Well, Eurythmics um, came out of the ashes of a band that Dave and I had created before. We made three albums with the tourists and we had a certain amount of success in the sense that we travelled the world, we went to Australia and Japan, we were, we'd been on television and radio. We'd, for me, I, I look at it as a kind of rehearsal for Eurythmics, really. I, I cut my teeth. Is, is that a saying? Like you cut your teeth on it? Yes, of course. I cut my teeth on the tourists. I really had the, the hardcore experiences, touring, performing, night after night, you know, in front of sometimes quite rough audiences because in the 70s it was the punk era and so you went on stage it was dangerous it, it wasn't easy you know by the time the tourists sort of broke up if you like um, that was when we had the idea Dave and I okay this is maybe what we want to do now just we'll just become a duo and we'll just and at that same point very interestingly synthesized keyboards and little drum machines and computers just the very early prototype of computers started to be available in the shops so with you know with some money you could purchase these things and you could create your own little home studio and really Dave was the great visionary in all of that because he's has an extraordinary facility for recording and technical things like that and he just set the whole thing up I was there kind of but more from the musical perspective I've never been I'm a bit of a technophobe but Dave got that started and we had like a little, I think we started with like a, a four track machine and we, we just started and it was in this reduced space. I mean, now that just sounds like everybody does it. It's generic. Everybody records in their bedroom and they all have Pro Tools and their, their, you know, their computer and that's all they need. Anywhere, you can do it anywhere. But in those days, that was really radical. Now tell me about Sweet Dreams. First of all, would you agree or not? It's probably your best known work. Oh, absolutely. No question. Absolutely. I so think when did that happen and how did that happen? It's, it's really, you know, when you think back, <laughs> it's a funny story in a way. Because on the day that we started to create this song, Sweet Dreams, I was in a terrible mood and I was really ready to pack it in and to go back to Scotland. I had realised that there was no hope whatsoever and it wasn't going to happen and that was the mood I was in. So I was you like, were thinking, we're done here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I was, you know, I was really depressed about it. And Dave was like, you know, he's a very brilliant individual. So he's like, okay, you're down, okay. But now, well, you won't mind, will you, if I just go and do this? So he started to program a drum beat that was like that boom, you know. <laughs> and I was, and then I was sitting sort of mooching in the corner of my. Of the, of the studio that we had, we were working in. And I heard him doing this and then I was like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> so then I got onto the keyboard, so I started to, okay, okay, I'll play with this, I'll play with this, I'll play with this. And so it went on because when you create music this way, you kind of start with a layer of the beat and then you kind of come in with something else and then you add something else. And it started with this notion of 
somewhat self-deprecatingly, sweet dreams are made of this. It wasn't a good story. It was actually very self-deprecating. Who am I to disagree? I traveled the world in the seven seas. Everybody's looking for something. And it was a statement about myself, ourselves, and then everybody else. Sweet dreams are made of the hills. Who am I to disagree? I travel the world and the seven seas. Everybody's looking for something. It was about that dreaming of an aspirational dream everybody has and then whether or not it comes true, whether it or not it is fulfilled. And in the case of Sweet Dreams, ironically, <laughs> what, the, what the song was all about actually fulfilled itself, which is so strange when I think about it. Because at the time, I really had no th thoughts that the song would have such a sort of powerful trajectory. Well, it certainly resonates in so many places around the globe. I know. Why do you think that is? You know, it's so interesting. It's something about Sweet Dreams that people latch on to, that they identify with. And it, whether it's because they want to celebrate a victory from a football match or it's someone's birthday, I don't really know. But there's something in the song that people just love. And it's a very peculiar song because it's, it's like a little mantra. It just goes around and around. It just says the same thing over and over. And people just have identified with it. Do you have a favorite Eurythmic song? Many, many favorite years make songs. You know, we made so many albums and pff, there's so many songs that we made. There must be an angel playing with my heart. From There Must Be an Angel Playing With My Heart. Sisters are doing it for themselves, but I lie to you. Missionary Man. I don't know. There's a whole catalogue of songs there. <laughs> Is there ever? When and why did you decide to go solo? Well, we were very fortunate in that, you know, we did have this momentum. And every year, we would write, record an album and release it, along with videos that went along with that, because it was the MTV generation. And we loved making videos, and we were, very, we were particularly visually orientated in any case, so this was just a bonus for us. We just loved it. Um, but it, it, it does require a lot of work. And, you know, we were just touring, rehearsing, traveling, traveling. A decade of that, for me, started to be quite onerous. And I started to lose the sense of, you know, myself, independently, autonomously. And I think also Dave felt the same way. So it was a natural thing. I mean, sometimes you just run out of steam. And we both sat down on a park bench. We were in Rio de Janeiro. We were um, performing in a fest big festival there. And um, we were also making a film, as we always do, like multitasking, do many things. We're sitting on this park bench on the top of, a, of this mountain in Rio, or hillside. And we were both just saying, OK, time to leave, time to, go, to do something else. He went his way, I went my way. and. Um, that was that. We have come together to do the occasional thing together. But I really think we've had our time. You know, it was, a, it was an incredible decade. There was a woman in the jungle and a monkey on a tree. The missionary man, he was following me. He said, stop what you're doing, get down upon your knees. I have a message for you that you better believe. believe, believe. Bouncing up was
Where do you get the inspiration for your songs? Or is it just a case of, listen, I'm not always inspired, I work at it. Yeah, no, I haven't written a song in a long while. There was a time when I was, that was my theme, that, you know, I was a songwriter and I write songs and I must find a keyboard because I need to sit at this keyboard and I need to write a song. I'm going into the studio and I'm sort of like, hmm, I have to write a song. But it's so strange. The songs come sometimes just, I can't, you know, if, if, if you could just write it down like a shopping list and send it off and it would be delivered to you, that would not be great. But it just doesn't work like that. It's almost like, sometimes I noticed that there would be a, a very big dip in my mood before a song came. And I would be feeling like really the opposite, like dark. And then somehow or another, the song came. It was part of the process. I don't know how to explain that to you. Well, so many of your songs were about heartbreak. Yes. Why is that? Because I, there was a lot of heartbreak. And in my life, I felt very heartbroken. And I think many people do feel heartbroken. I think it's Biggest heartbreak? Biggest heartbreak. Oh, I don't even want to to think about my biggest heartbreak because my biggest heartbreak was so, so incredibly rough, you know, losing my child, to be frank with you, delivering a stillborn baby. You know, how, how, you know that's probably the most heartbreaking thing that could happen to anyone. Um, so that's the lowest point of things, but um, certainly a lot of romantic heart, heartbreaking relationships that never really came into fruition, living in a lifestyle being on the road, being quite isolated, you know, kind of brought a lot of baggage to the table, I think. Being on the road, being isolated, being lonely, you didn't use the mm. word, I did. Did you go through a period where you felt like, in retrospect, that you had too many partners, bed partners and otherwise? Whoa, you came right to the quick there. <laughs> um, no, it's just too, too... I, I don't know, I don't even want to go there. It's just so painful, you know, it's just like, ah, I don't want to really go into um, my relationships that failed because they're painful. So I'm now in a really stable, beautiful relationship and so happy and it's just like everything that went before me, do you know, I don't even want to think about it. I can understand that. Mm. But where I was going with, I think many people don't realize how really difficult it is to be on the road, even when you're successful. There's a loneliness to it. Oh, God, yes. And the, the other thing is that there's a camaraderie with, with men. It is a man's world, very much on the road. And I love the company of men. I get on, I think, I get on very well with men. And I'm talking at a platonic level here. God bless you. Yeah, you know, I like men. I love men. And I admire men, you know, when I see, like, this kind of extraordinary team spirit that you have to have on the road, for example, for, the, for example. All the technicians and the crew, they, you know, when they set it up and all the lights and the sound and they work so damn hard and they come into town, they set the whole thing up for you to do your show. I mean, I have such gratitude and such appreciation for that kind of very arduous lifestyle. Tell me about uh, sisters are doing it for themselves. One could argue has become the female anthem of your time. Mm -hmm. How did it come about? Well, it's funny. I, this is so strange. Again, there's no formula to songwriting. I woke up one morning, as the legendary blues phrase always says, I woke up in the morning and I, I was in that sort of semi-dream state. And I grabbed a piece of paper 
and, I, and I'd been thinking, I want to write an anthem for women. I want to write an anthem for women. And it just came out, line after line after line, and there it was. Sisters are doing it for themselves. That's how that happened. Strange. Could you say for me, or maybe sing for me, your own favorite lines from that anthem? Well, there was a time when they used to say that behind every great man there had to be a great woman. Well, in these times of change, you know that it's no longer true. So we're coming out of the kitchen Cause there's something we forgot to say to you We say sisters are doing it for themselves <laughs> Did you know from the beginning that it would be big, very big? No, 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 no. Everything goes like chicken and egg. So you start with the song, sort of, in this instance, that was a completed song. A lot of the songs that Dave and I wrote together was the, the two of us working it out. This one really was. I mean, obviously, Dave is not going to wake up and write an anthem for women. He's like, okay, what do I do in this? <laughs> so, interestingly enough, we thought it would be a really nice thing to, you know, to partner with another woman. And... I think it was Clive Davis at the time, I don't remember exactly, but uh, put a call into Aretha Franklin and suggested that she might be interested in this. So then we get a call to say, yes, actually, Aretha Franklin, we'd love to meet you. Please go to Detroit. Had you met her before? No, 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 not at all. So then another adventure opened up, going to Detroit to meet Aretha Franklin to record Sisters. Okay. <laughs> How, ooh, I can't, you know, this is kind of, wake me up, you know, this, is, this can't be happening. So, it, it, you know, we did that. Amazing. Listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Annie Lennox. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Annie Lennox. After Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart decided to go their separate ways, Lennox embarked on a solo career. In the early 90s, she released her first album, Diva, which included hits like Why. And Walking on Broken Glass. It shot Lennox back to the top of the charts. 
but she would release only one other album that decade as she decided to take a step out of the spotlight to focus on raising her children. You mentioned before that music is the aspiration of the soul. When did you come to that conclusion? I love the phrase, by the way. Well, I think it's something that you know subliminally as a child, as a very young child, because you're just connecting with it. You don't have language for it. You look at little children in a, in a pushchair, a buggy, and some music comes on, and they, they will start. There's lots of lovely music clips, you know, YouTube clips with children in the back of cars, and they put some music on, the child is like, whoa, comes alive. And, you know, so, th so what does that tell you? It's a powerful thing, and it doesn't have to be explained. But how you come into it as an adult and how you come into it as a music maker and what it means to you. And is it, is it about being famous? Is it about huge success and making money? And how sustainable is it? And what does it mean? You know, all of these things, that, that, those things come a bit later. You mentioned also that you went to a point where you were saying to yourself, who am I? What do I want to achieve? Yeah. Well, who are you? Who mm. are you really? You know, it's that existential question that some of us ask constantly, the seekers of the world, they're asking this question, and some of us maybe don't ask the question, and we live a different sort of life. And I don't think that there's, I, I probably don't have the answer, uh, who am I? But it's so intriguing because how come you're born, you know, you didn't, some people think you, you chose to be born, with a certain particular belief in reincarnation, what have you, but ostensibly, here you are, Here's your mother and father. Here's your home. Here's your city or your rural place. Here's your school. Here's your college. Here's your job. Here's your children. Here are the clothes that you wear. Are you those things? And they are, I don't think you are. I think you're partly that. But in any case, all these things just constantly change. So you go from the child to the adolescent to the adult to the older person and ultimately to death. And you never know when that's going to happen. So, I mean, whether we realize it or not, we are all living in this strange existential moment that is only now. The past that we've experienced is just now in a memory. And the future hasn't happened yet. At your core, the, at your essence, about what do you care the most? That's a very good question. About what do I care the most? To live a life that is somehow able to deal with the challenges that one faces. To not succumb to the overwhelming sort of potential of being crushed and being in a place of despair. I think every one of us, rich or poor, is, is in that position. Like, how do I create a life of meaning and value. Now, to a person who has nothing, I mean, in, in material terms, that individual is merely trying to survive. So if you ask that person, what is life for you? It's just getting by, that's, that's something. And then other, other people might say, well, I want to make a million dollars by the time I'm 25. You know, everybody has their own notion of what it is to be alive and to be successful. Well, I often think that a measure of one's life is one's service. Now, whether you agree with that or not. I do agree it, with that, actually. Well, in, in your own case, what has been 
so far, your greatest service? Uh, <laughs> I, do, I don't feel comfortable answering the question because um, I think then it, it, I say, oh, my greatest service is this, or my greatest service is that. I think that um, for me, I have responded to, first of all, I mean, my life has gone in different phases. So first of all, I was responding to music very much, e even as a child, very much so. And then as a young adult, still music and music. And how do I do that? And it was like a muse. And, and it was like, I want to make this music and I want to record this music and I want to write these songs and I want to do, and I, you know, and I met Dave Stewart and we created, ultimately we created Eurythmics together, he, and together really, as a partnership. And it was, it had such a momentum, you know. And then life's, life takes you on these journeys and these trips, if you like. And towards the end of that phase with Eurythmics, which lasted a decade, it was, oh, okay, so I think, now I want to go in another direction. I was in my early 30s at that point, and I felt I just wanted to stop the world and get off it for a bit. And as it happened, as things turned out, I actually had children. I have two daughters. In those days, in the 90s, they were little tiny toddlers. So I had the opportunity to become a mother. And that was life-changing, life-transforming. I want to shift gears for a moment, because you talk about it, and I quote you here, feminism is a phenomenal empowering word, don't abuse it, and don't take it for granted. Let's talk about that. Okay, okay. Well, the word feminism is a powerful word. People react to it in all sorts of different ways. It can be very divisive and it can be very polarizing. People get very hit up about feminism and all, you know. For me, it's very simple. It's simply about the empowerment of women and girls, logistically, in terms of their rights and in terms of their access to education, to having the opportunities in, in the job to have the same amount of pay as a man, for example, to have the same possibilities to become a professor or a, a lawyer or a doctor. We've seen these huge strides taking place over the last hundred years or so. But there's still so much work to be done. And when I go to the developing world and I see, for example, a country like Malawi, a 15-year-old girl who's pregnant with a baby on her back already. And I know that that, that girl is not getting access to reproductive health care, contraception, for example, these things, and she's in poverty. I know that when she goes to the hospital to deliver that baby, it could well be on the floor, and she could well die because there's no maternal care um, for her. The maternal mortality rate for women in these countries is so high. That's where feminism needs to come in. That's where feminism needs to come in, to protect these women. has sold more than 80 million records worldwide. She's been named one of the 100 greatest singers of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. She's won an Oscar, Golden Globe, and Grammys. But her work with charity has garnered her new recognition. 
she was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth for her work raising the awareness of AIDS in Africa. She's traveled to Africa often, and each time she documents with a camera the stories of women and children infected with HIV, which led to this documentary. It's hard for me to describe how this wonderful little girl got to me. She's so sick, but so incredibly strong. You have passion for a number of causes. One of them has long been uh, AIDS, HIV. How did you get interested in that? And why so passionate about it? Well, there was a turning point. It took place in 2004, November to be precise, when I was invited to be taking part in Nelson Mandela's launch for his HIV AIDS foundation. And he said, people are in my, in my country, people are dying like flies. I'm just, I'm not quoting verbatim, but women and children are at the forefront of this pandemic. And we need to do something. We need to stop this happening. And from that experience and realizing that here is South Africa, a country that had overcome apartheid and so many challenges, and he was trying, he was trying very, very much to get that message across to the rest of the world, to get support for the people of South Africa again in a completely different way. This time, a deadly virus, but you know, it's preventable disease, you know. If you have access to treatment, you don't have to die. But they weren't getting access to treatment. This is what he was saying. There was a bottleneck because of the president's view and the health minister's view, people couldn't get access to treatment at that time. Subsequently, things have changed, but it's been a dire situation. And I was given the privilege of going to townships and clinics and hospitals and people's homes where I saw the HIV pandemic face to face, a human face, you know, and it, it changed my whole paradigm. When I came back to my comfortable life in the United Kingdom, I wanted to tell everybody what I'd seen. That's the feeling that you get if you go there and you see what's going on. It's like, I can't believe this crisis is going on. Now we have Ebola, you know, a healthcare crisis that could be out of control. So these things, they come and the effectiveness of the response is so, so important. Indeed it is. I understand you have a big birthday coming up on Christmas Day. Not as big as yours, but kind of keeping up with you. Well, uh... Why do you continue to do this? What, have birthdays or to continue? No, no, no. <laughs> birthdays are inevitable. Birthdays you have to have. But why do you continue to do what you do, to do your work? You're an age, you don't need the money. You've had uh, more fame, more notoriety than oh, many, I, many people have. Yeah, I don't want fame and I don't want notoriety. I'm certainly, that has never been the reason why I've made music or done anything. Fame and notoriety goodbye, stay out, away from me. I don't want that. Um, music, I've, I've loved to make because I'm so drawn. I'm a musician, I'm an artist, I want to express myself, I want to communicate. And I'm very, very passionate about life. And um, I think what makes me tick is to get engaged with the things that I feel passionately about. I'm not trying to be an example to anybody. I'm not t telling people what they should do either, really. Um, sometimes I've, I might suggest that you might want to do this, but by and large, I just want to live a life that's energized, inspiring, is engaged, and as peaceful as I can make it, you know, avoiding all sorts of controversy, if possible. 
By the way, as a child, was having a birthday on Christmas Day a problem or a blessing? Well, as I've always had a birthday on Christmas Day for the last 59 years, I don't know any different. So it's never really been a, a big issue for me, you know, because as I say, Jesus Christ has always eclipsed me. <laughs> At the memorial service for you, after your time on this earth is gone, what one song, what one song would you like to be played or sung? <laughs> you can't ask that question. Can't ask that question. In my in my um, in my service, I just want some Tibetan monks with. Um, I just want some chanting, and um, when people come in, they can have bagpipes. And at the end, they'll have the Tibetan monks chanting. And then it's got to be, I don't know, some Stax music to walk you out, something like that, just broadly speaking. You being a Scot, I could have guessed the bagpipes. What question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? I think we've done really well. I really appreciate you taking the time. No, it's You've been, given us so you. many things to think about. Yeah, I'm, I'm just one of those people that's like really curious about everything. And the world perplexes me. You know, always has. And I think that just the fact that you're here as a human being, like, what are you supposed to do with this life? What, you know, how do you live a life of value, of, of real? How do you get to be feeling good within yourself? That's very important. And also, how do you get to, to live this life where you're not desperately unhappy in your job and then you're sort of miserable? And I, I, that's really why I feel so incredibly grateful to be an artist. And, you know, it hasn't been an easy uh, road. But now, at this stage in my life, this is like gravy. This is, you know, <laughs> making music like this. It's fantastic. And thank you. Thank you. You've been thank great. Thank you. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.